This is the ferry from Cove to Spike Island. It's a quick 10-minute trip across the waters of Cork Harbour. And this morning, a group of people took this ferry out to the island. They're there to visit houses on the island, the homes where they used to live. I'm heading to meet Claire Stack. She lived on Spike Island until she was 12. So, so where are we walking to now? So we're walking down to what we call the Red Bricks, which were two blocks where there were kind of, I suppose, apartments or flats at the time where several families would have lived, and various other houses around the place and down towards the church and the school as well. Was all down this area. So there was a it was quite a community here then. It was a big community in in my time. I suppose there would have been about two or three hundred people living here. What's this building on the right here then? So in here then is Chapel Yard. And um, that's me. There's you. <laughs> that a picture of yeah, you. Yeah. You were immortalised. Immortalised yeah, myself, my sister. And, and there's a placard that says families continue to live on the island until 1985, when following a riot in jail, the civilian population was evacuated and rehoused on the mainland. Forty prisoners are still on the roof of the Fort Mitchell complex on Spike Island following a night of rioting during which the prison was set prisoners on fire. Prisoners armed with an assortment of weapons including pickaxe handles and petrol bombs simply took over and commenced an orgy of destruction. All that was between us was about 70, 80 prisoners, women and children screaming and roaring in there. As we approached Spike Island in Cork Harbour, clouds of smoke still hung over the charred and burned out administration The story of the riot on Spike Island was wall-to-wall news here in Ireland in early September 1985. But that story has never been told from the inside until now. From RTE Documentary on One, this is Spike Island Spontaneous Madness. So what exactly happened here on Spike Island? Well, 1980s Ireland is a time of hunger strikes, refuse strikes, power cuts and football hooligans. Three general elections in 18 months. It's an Ireland of pirate radio and, and moving statues. Prayers were said at masses in many parts of the country today for an improvement in the weather to save the harvest. Inflation is at 20% and nearly one in five adults is out of work. What I do remember about Ireland of that particular era was turmoil, constant tax going up, constantly financial crises. In the Ireland of the 1980s, John Cuff was lucky to have a secure, pensionable job. He was a prison officer. Unless you got into civil service or the guards, or these type of... These were jobs that you just got into security to guarantee yourself a wage. In the mid-80s, if you had an education, you could do what Manny did and emigrate, or like John, get a so-called job for life in the civil service. Pieces of paper were becoming more and more important, which meant it was harder and harder for those who didn't have those pieces of paper or qualifications. When did you leave school? I left school when I was 13. Michael, from Cork's Northside. Yeah, after I was on the hop, you know. What would you do when you were on the hop? 
To be honest, nice. when Tom shoplifting and then the joy and coming in the 80s, it was like a culture was at the happening with us, like, you know. Talk to me about that, because joyriding is very much an 80s thing, wasn't it? Yeah, jeez, uh, I don't know, it was like an old pop culture to us. It's just the cows and the buds of going out robbing cows. I don't know, it was just a thing. And it became a big thing in the city for about 10 years, you know. So the, the, the buzz came from stealing the car, was it? Stealing the cow and getting chased by the girls. Stealing cars had become a huge media story, sometimes with good reason, because of tragic instances. As you know, we have a report from Hotel 5 that a pedal site is knocked down by this stolen car. This is from June 1985. The news that came over the Garda radio was that a woman cyclist, Mrs. Bridget Fitzpatrick, aged 62, had been struck by the speeding car. The force of the impact had hurled her through the windscreen. She now lay in a crumpled heap in the front of the car. The driver didn't stop. The chase continued through residential streets, ending abruptly when the car ploughed through this wall. Mrs Fitzpatrick was dead on admission to the Matter Hospital. By the mid-1980s, the prisons were filling up with young offenders, partly because it was seen as the best solution to youth crime. Prison officer John Cuff saw how this was having an impact. What had happened at that side, the perfect storm, overcrowding, the revolving doors, was one of the key words that was going in this mid-1980s. So prisoners were coming in, there were several very short time, and they are going back out again, and they knew that. So they were kind of getting ill-disciplined. Staff were getting very tired dealing with troublesome prisoners, constantly overcrowding, sleeping on the floors, doubling, trebling up cells and all that. So that perfect storm was coming together. With the Department of Justice under severe pressure, the search was on for the classic Irish quick solution to this problem of so-called joy riding, and attention turned to Spike Island. And right in the centre of the island is Fort Mitchell. This is, it's hard to explain until you stand here, it's an enormous 30-acre site. It's It's a massive parade ground surrounded by tall, imposing buildings. In one sense, Fort Mitchell was worth considering. It had already been a military prison, and before that, a prison for those being transported to Van Diemen's land. Also, a good point to make here, it was out of the way. It wasn't in anyone's backyard. But it would be a perfect solution for those who saw prison as punishment, I guess, rather than rehabilitation, like this man I found while researching in the RTE archives. These fellas that are taking cars, I would soften these fellas' cough by taking them at the back of a wall and beating the living daylights out of them. Now, that's the right thing should happen to And one of those fellas taking cars was Michael from Cork's north side. So did you end up in spite because of Joy Ryden? Yeah, yeah. I, I was actually in a terrible car accident prior to coming in where I, I nearly had my head torn off. You've got a lot of scars in your face yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I got a surgery on that over the years. What happened to you? We crashed the car down by the commons. I walk up in the region, end up coming straight to prison, and I got 11 months then for it. In 1985, prison officer John Cuff had been promoted and he was looking for a change. He moved from Shangana Detention Centre out here to Ireland's newest prison, Fort Mitchell on Spike Island. And I went there in late April 1985, and the numbers were small, manageable on Spike at that stage. Prisoners were sent to Spike Island, but Fort Mitchell was not properly equipped to receive them. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like it was cells and that, it was dormitories. So they just threw like 18 or 20 of us into five different dorms. So prisoners were sleeping in dorms, not cells. And these buildings here all around me had previously been the sleeping quarters of the British and later the Irish Navy. After about a week there, I realised that the Navy had been billeted there and all that, and that the conditions that they had were actually very, very poor. The toilets were outside, out the back. They weren't fit for prisoners. Prisoners wouldn't use them. And the department were aware of that. But it was kind of made up on a day-to-day basis. Surreal is the only word. It was all so surreal that prisoner Michael even found himself doing a bit of what put him in here in the first place. Joyriding, this time on a tractor. We would go around the island in a tractor, you know, getting hay to throw around wearables, you know. But he'd be boating around corners and we'd be falling off. Then we'd go up and we'd be messing in the gun turrets around the place, you know. It was, it, was, it was a bit of an adventure on there, really. But in retrospect, did, could you see something was going to happen or did it look like it was all controllable? No, it wasn't controllable, Peter. And both John and Michael, the prison officer and the prisoner, both recalled stories from May 85 that gave each of them a sense of where things were going. For prison officer John, it was the night of the European Cup final in Hazel Stadium, Belgium. Liverpool fans attacked Juventus fans and the resulting stampede led to 39 deaths. That particular evening, there was just a mood about the place. There was just a, a, a spikiness about spike. There was something not right but you couldn't put your finger on it. I was a big Liverpool fan. And at one stage I walked from the Mitchell block towards it. There was a big roar in the hall. Uh, so it was either a goal or an incident or something. And I said, I'd get up close and find out what's happening. And, and when I went in, I, the fallout was starting there. The Heysel Stadium has been a sickening and bewildering sight. I could see... Um, those people are dead there in the hazel. I've seen at least two stretchers carried away and the stretchers were covered from head to foot. And I remember saying, jeez, that's not football. And I came back out and uh, it was almost an omen. Something down the line. I, I knew the spike wasn't in a great place. For prisoner Michael, the moment which sticks with him was a breakout from the island itself. Prior to me going on there, lads escaped on a raft, mad drunk, after drinking a load of hooch. It's 13 minutes to nine, and six people escaped from Spike Island earlier this morning. Five have... It appears to have been a workman's raft, which was in the Spike Island uh, area. They got into that about quarter past three this morning, and they rode themselves a small distance to the The residents were already anxious about the way the prison was being run. With the breakout by raft, they felt doubly concerned. There's 20-odd children under the age of four on the island, and we're just not safe anymore. And when we told the authorities in the beginning that they could escape no problem from the fort, we were laughed at. It was a big joke. It's not a big joke now today. 
And when they got to the pier head, if the rafts hadn't been there, what would they have done? They might have come back up and looked for a hostage, taken one of the children hostage or something. The minister who was responsible for opening Spike Island as a prison for joyriders was Michael Noonan. After the raft escape, he came on the radio to address the residents' concerns. We knew, of course, uh, when we were uh, sending prisoners down there, that there was a possibility the prisoners would abscond. But the option was that the guards had arrested something like 650 people for car stealing alone. And there was an enormous pressure on prison space and I needed to get it very, very quickly. But all it takes is one prisoner to lose his head, go into one of those houses, get hold of a knife and he has a hostage. Ah, well, you know, you can dramatise anything. But I don't think the local residents are at any risk whatsoever. Whatever about the residents dramatising the risk, Prison officer John Cuff reckoned that this place wasn't up to the job. There was no perimeters. OK, you're out on an island and the big wall around it, but if they wanted to leave the place or get out of it, there was a hundred escape routes out of it. So you couldn't corral them for the one. In other words, there was no exercise yard. A lot of the staff we had were young people that come straight into Spike to be trained. So they hadn't seen how a system worked in a proper jail. Added to that, new prisoners kept being sent here to the island and they were not ideal candidates for an open prison like Spike. The calibre of prisoners that we got were troublesome. I'm of the opinion that most prisoners that sent us prisoners got rid of troublesome prisoners. It's a perfectly understandable thing. If I was in another prison and I had somebody that was giving me hassle and that he was voluntarily wanting to go to Spike, then off you go. But we were quickly overwhelmed. I went ashore for a weekend, and I think we had 80-something, and I came back and we had 112. And that's a big jump in a place like that. Okay, just think about that for a moment. That's over 100 prisoners in this open prison. And outside the walls, literally just beyond the walls, there lived families, and they were living in Navy married quarters. And in charge of keeping everyone safe, there was just a supervisor and six prison officers. There's been a lot of tension there. Like, I remember a fella escaping over Dublin fella. He went, he went out with the visitors, you know. He just put on clothes and went back home. The fella with the visitors, you know, and he got away. And John Cuff, the supervisor of those six prison officers guarding the 100 prisoners, says the situation was impossible. It was like basically trying to keep an eye on geese at a crossroads. I suppose we were young enough, but they were treating us like children, like, you know, like we were in a school setting, like. They started playing football at the back of one of the blocks, and they kicked the ball further so the staff would move back a small piece, and suddenly they were eating up space. It was like a game. They, they were making the space that they could associate in so wide and so big. They were controlling you. And then as a young supervisor, I myself would be trying to control the staff and say, don't let them do that, push them back in. And then they say, well, John, what will you do if they kick the ball over my head? Should <laughs> they have to go back out? So it was tiny little games like that. But I could see it, uh, particularly in the dormitories at night time, there was 12 to 16 of them in a dormitory, in a barracks room kind of a setting. The door on the dormitory, we're looking at a table here, Peter, it said, I was just a chicken coop door. That's the type of doors that were on Spike. And the lock that was on it, you'd buy down in Kelly's Hardware. That was the locks that we had on it. We had 16 prisoners inside of there. It was scary. On one particular night, they tied each other to beds, the blackened faces on other prisoners inside of it. And they basically held the carriage. If they decide that night to riot and cut loose, 
they're the one. We immediately phoned for staff to come out from the mainland and it, it calmed itself down around two o'clock. So the writing was clearly on the wall. This was coming and the shape that it came in was that night. That could have been any night. And that night turned out to be a night at the end of August 1985. Michael, the 18-year-old prisoner, remembers how it all kicked off. Someone robbed the safe in the officer's mess, a few of the lads. They actually robbed the safe and got money over it, and the officers then were a bit ticked off about that, so they tumbled the dormitories. What's tumbled the dormitories? Well, they pulled over all the cupboards and that, as they do like in the search, and I suppose it was a bit payback. But not a lot of people know why they were tumbling all the drawers, you know, and it was because the safe was robbed. And, you know, they came back from work at four o'clock with the fours all over the ground and clothes and this and that. So that's the results of the search night, you know. So basically when the, when the prisoners went back into the dormitories, it had been it turned over. Yeah. And then that night, there was fierce tension over that episode, like, you know. And it was no more normal nor abnormal than any other day that was there. And I went off without a care in the world. So you finished your shift and you left the eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. About half past eight, I left. That was Saturday night. Three hours later, at eleven thirty, the first signs of trouble came with the report that there was a, a commotion here in front of me in Block A, Room Five. Michael was just up there in Room Three. And then we got out. What do, you mean, what do you mean, how'd you get out? We went to both five of us hopping off the door because, I mean, there was really three locks on it, you know. It was really had to hop off for a while and there was a fellow outside the door trying to break the lock when it actually popped. And he was knocked out cold on the ground for about ten minutes, you know, when our door went out. That was a prisoner? Prisoner, yeah. Then just after midnight on the morning of Sunday, September 1st, fire was spotted here in uh, Block A dormitory, and then more fires here on the same wing. And just, you know, looking at it now, just looking through the, you know, the wooden windows and, and, and the floor inside is charred, it's timber. I mean, this place must have gone up like a tinderbox. There was foils being lit everywhere. I mean, it was fucking just right from day one. So there were... Were you frightened? Yeah, we were all terrified, like, you know. It was, even though I was all excitement and exhilarating and all that, we were still trying to anticipate what was going to happen. It's when the officers ganged up, like, you know what I mean? We were, you know, so we were kind of half afraid and trying to half being boisterous, like, you know. Like, when we all did get out, there was actually another dormitory downstairs. So we all went in there and barricaded ourselves in. And then the smoke started coming down through the ceiling. We were right, this is a bad idea. So we went back out. They had no plan. They had absolutely no plan. It was spontaneous. That got out of hand. They broke into the surgery, so they'd got the tablets and the drugs and whatever that was inside of there. Broke into the kitchen. Spontaneous madness. That spontaneous madness continued past midnight into Sunday morning. So at half past midnight on the Sunday morning, extra prison officers were sent for from the mainland, which is 10 minutes over that way. There were four Gardaí stationed here on the island, and Gardaí reinforcements from the mainland were also requested. At 10 past one in the morning, any residents trying to get back to the island from Cove were told to turn back. However, one couple insisted on coming over 
to the island to check on their children. And when they arrived here, they alerted the other families to what was going on. There was no alarm system on the island, and some of the families were totally unaware what was happening. The island was on fire. Over on the mainland, Seamus Mahoney, one of the island's residents, spoke to RTE at the time. I knew there was a fire in there, but uh, there was fires in there. I thought they were just doing, you know, burning out fires. You know, there'd be fires on the side of the island. My family was worried over there. They were saying that, uh, you know, they thought that, uh, you know, that they might get hurt. Inside the prison here, the riot was in full flow. Michael and some of the other prisoners headed from Block A over to the far side to the solitary confinement and punishment cells. There was a few of our friends in punishment and we said we'd go over and get them all. So we, we kind of, the, the block was on fire so when we came around the corner onto the main kind of opening in spike, there was about, I don't know, it was a seven or ten officers and that's all was there. And they had the shields and the batons and they were banging them, you know. To intimidate us, you know. How many of you were there? There was about 90 of us there. And we just ran at them and they took off. So then, uh, uh, I don't know what we had to explain. Things just went mad in, like. Although telephone communication with the island was gone, it actually didn't matter. Anyone on the mainland could simply look across Cork Harbour and see exactly what was happening here. I mean, all these buildings were on fire. Smoke was billowing into the air. I mean, the sea and the sky must have been just red and orange. I got a call at home in the early hours of the morning. Vincent Kelly was a reporter with the Cork Examiner back in 1985. Thought it was an emergency, family emergency. And it was a call from the news editor to say, get down to Spike as fast as you can. The whole place is in flames. It was coming up dawn. Streets were quiet. I met up with uh, Dixie Brazel uh, and Vince Power, who were both from the newspaper. And we stood around for a little while and we looked over at Spike. We thought it was a long way to swim. And somebody said, how are we going to get there? There's nobody around. And I think it was Dixie, who had amazing contacts, said, Eddie English, he's the man. And so we went down to Eddie English. He's a sail training school. And he knocked him up and knocked the door. And Eddie looked out the window. And he said, I will be down immediately. And so he was. That part of it was like an adventure, you know, uh, very exciting. He was down. He pulled the boat up from the quays. And we hopped in and we were off. Back here on Spike, Michael and his fellow prisoners were in control. Foils were being lit everywhere, you know. Everywhere we passed, it was like foil. They robbed the mess over there and then they broke into the governor's office and took their own files. Why were people lighting fires? Was it to destroy stuff or was it just out of Yeah, madness? I mean, like, they were all reading the reports in, in the governor's office and some of them were a bit annoyed with what was on there, the bogram, you know. So, yeah, they were setting fire. Everything was kind of setting fire as they were going. So then, like, we went over and got our friends over the, the punishment block. And next to the punishment block was the storeroom. And inside in the storeroom there was pickaxe, handles, slash hooks. So everyone was kind of armed to the teeth, you know, and it was getting serious, you know. 
It was still kind of bagging nose. The plan was apparently go down, get the ferry, and get off the island, and we walk it from there, like, you know, even though there was a hundred and of us at this stage, you know. It was 20 past one on the Sunday morning and the prisoners broke out of the jail. Small group of Gardaí here just outside the walls, they headed for cover and the prisoners headed down towards the island's pier, it's about five minutes away. They carried with them sticks, pickaxe handles, they wore face masks fashioned out of sleeves and jumpers. And when they got to the pier, they saw a group of people already there and they were the island's residents. Screaming, crying, and everything thought we were going to murder them. Terrified, watching us coming around the corner, like Ballyclavis, pickaxe handles, pickaxes, soys, you name it, like, there were serious weapons there. Like, and, uh, so the locals who were living on the island? Uh, they were screaming, it was, it was really, you know, you could see the terror in them. Like, and I think people, we became aware of it too, we were kind of feeling gammy about it. My name is Joe Crowley from Spike Island. Back then I was a ball boy. You were a ball boy? I, I, I was a ball boy. And I was in Cork prison yeah. as a prisoner. Right. But I was living on Spike Island when I was incarcerated. Yeah. I was living just there in the cottages as you go up on your left. So you were living on I was the released. Islands. I was released, released eventually back and to the just a week yes. of the riot. Yeah. So I was there that night. So what was the first you knew that there was trouble? All the noises and this and that and the other. Next thing there was a gang came down, all came down that hill. So I got the family, and it happened to be a girl visiting me that night, and she was also pregnant. Charlie Rain was on the boat, and he saw them coming down, and as we were running down the pier, he had to pull out, because, of course, if the prisoners had got the boat, it was all over, you know? So, so the boat pulls away. Pulls away as we were just closing the pier. So, so were you hoping to get everyone we were to get onto the boat, and we were all safe. Yeah. But Charlie had to pull out. So there you are, you can't get off the island, the prisons are coming towards you, and you're with the residents. Yeah. So children. what did you do? We went into the hut here on the right, as you just go off the pier, right, yeah. Yeah, and we were all in there, and they were all outside, battens and belly clavers, and it was just everyone was crying and screaming and roaring. And I got another man, and uh, I said, will you walk over here with me? And I just felt, and I said, Paddy, are you there amongst them, bud? Oh, Joe, it's yourself. Yes, because they knew me. And they said, look, Joe, we're going to burn down the island. You know? They said that to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I said, look, I said, there's family here. I said, there's a pregnant girl. And I said, I know what the gang are like. And I said, would you uh, sort something out here? And he said, so he went back and talked to them. He came up to me, he said, Joe, he went to one house, and we picked Una Tom's house, which is here on the right, and we all went in there. And we just kind of made, yeah, the one down the pier, and left them all out to us, and we were showing them they'd be all right. So as the prisoners lined up in their, their guard of honour either side of the, the pier, the women, children and men all headed back up along the coast there to the house. Did you feel threatened? Or did the families feel threatened? Because were... That was scary when I think back. You had two children on the island that night. Were they frightened? Of course, of course. How of course, did you explain yeah. it to them what was going on? Well, there was such a gathering of us, like, you know, I suppose the, the men were kind of trying to sort out what was happening, and by the time we all got settled in one house, it was all a big party to them, I suppose, you know what I mean? They knew they were safe with their mammies and their daddies, you know what I mean? Yeah, they were scared when we were being chased down the pier, of course, everyone I was, you know what I mean, you know, you know. Meanwhile, the first boats with Gardaí from Cove had reached the island here. But they couldn't get ashore. 
girls were trying to come in on a, a ferry that was about 30 of them. So we'd even come in about 20 feet then, fire petrol bombs and such a fucking flames of open fire, right? Jeez, that was going on for hours. Well, they were trying to dock and you were... They were trying to dock yeah. and there was petrol bombs before, they were at them every time they got close. So, so they kind of, they kept going on, kept coming in, kept going on, kept coming in. It was all madness, like, do you know what I mean? But we, like, we all had this fear, like, there was going to be retribution for this thing. It was now 10 to 2 in the morning. While the prisoners were down here at the pier, back up at the fort, the handful of prison officers had managed to barricade themselves into the prison. They were afraid they would be attacked by the mob. Then six Gardaí landed further down shore here on the island, and this may well have given rise to the rumour that the Navy were coming. Then the war went around that Navy seals were going to come on because the Navy was only across the way, like, so we were all getting paranoid. So then someone had a great plan of hot oil the JCB. The JCB was being used to, to renovate the prison and every night it was parked outside the walls of Fort Mitchell. That way, if there was a riot, the prisoners wouldn't be able to use it to, to break out. But of course, now the prisoners are already outside and need to break back in. So the JCB is really in an ideal place. It's now 10 past two in the morning. So you've broken out of the jail, yeah. and now you've got to break back in again. Yes, we are back in because we were trapped. And we were all kind of realizing there was going to be consequences for this late, you know? So yeah, we are, we're hanging off the JCB, doing wheelies up the hill. The prison was blazing, I never seen a fire like it. I don't think anyone was really realised the extent of the damage we were at to doing. Like. And we went back up and we drove through the first gate. And we couldn't get through the second gate because the few officers that were inside had the lorry up against the gate and they had power hoses and they were trying to keep us out. And we were trying to break in and there was a real pitch battle went on for an hour there. Yeah. Like the JCB was hammering off the gate like that. The lorry was blocking the gate from going in, you know. And I mean, I seen pitchforks going through things, uh, hitting officers. I was amazed that no one was killed, like. And here, this is the main entrance now. It's 3.15 in the morning, and this is where the prisoners finally broke back in to the fort, where the prison officers were, of course, hiding. At four o'clock, guard the reinforcements gathered in Cove. 40 minutes later, they landed on the island. They were followed by reporters like Vincent Kelly and Dennis Redding from the Cork Examiner. Dennis Redding spoke to RTE at the time. When we reached the entrance to the fort itself, a number of prisoners were standing around. Others were wandering aimlessly around the roads. We spoke to some of the prisoners and we asked them exactly what happened. And they said that some of the longer-term prisoners, those serving five and six years for really serious crimes, began by tearing up floorboards, setting fire to these. They also damaged ceilings, 
anything they could get their hands on. Smashed windows. This caused panic. While he was on the island, Vincent Kelly from the Cork Examiner spotted something on the ground. I noticed something gleaming in the grass. The light hit it in a certain way. And I just bent down and I picked it up and it was a chisel. And one of the lads said, that's not a chisel, that's a weapon. And that stopped me in my tracks and I said, ah, that couldn't be a weapon. And then in a small area I came across several more of them and they were dotted about where they left there to be used. Is that a chisel in your hand? That's the exact chisel that I came across on the island. And in fact, I have another one, a bigger one. And the reason I took it was when the lad said, they're to be used by somebody, you know, let's get rid of those things. That's about a half an inch chisel wide. Yes. That's pretty serious. Yes. Standing here at the main gate of Fort Mitchell, you can look right across to about a kilometre away and there's Cove looking very pretty in the distance with the cathedral and a, a big liner, a big cruise ship there as well. And that's where prison officer John Cuff was. He was asleep in bed when the news of Spike was coming through to him, although he didn't realise it at the time. Broadcasting on 194 metres medium wave and VHF stereo 104, this, this is, is South Coast, Coast Radio. Radio. During the night I had a habit of leaving the radio switched on for company. South Coast Radio. And I thought I heard saying that the army and the fire brigades and stuff like that. But I said to myself, I'm dreaming. I'm dreaming this. So I woke up at half five and the radio said, violence in Spike Island, on fire, guardy, blah, blah. And I jumped straight out of bed and I just put on my uniform. As I'm coming down the hill into Cove, I'm seeing discarded guard motorbikes and guarded cars and vans and whatnot on the side of the road coming into it, and Spike is on fire with the sea to the background. I'm not overhyping this when I said it. It was like Apocalypse Now, there's a scene in it where everything's on fire in the jungle. And I said, Jesus, I wasn't dreaming. There's a uh, mini Dunkirk, there's boats going in and going out, there's guards, there's everybody. Over here on the island, having broken back into the prison... It was decided by someone that we'd all go up the top of the mess. What, why did you go on the roof? I don't know, I think it was our affair, really. Like, I, I think we were starting to realise that, you know, yeah. there's going to be big trouble over this, we're going to get massacred, like, you know. It was now 6.15 on Sunday morning, and about 40 prisoners had taken to the roof of Mitchell Hall. Down below where I am now, prison officer John Cuff surveyed the damage. There was a knot of officers and I walked towards one of them and when I looked at the back of his blue helmet, it was split where somebody had put one of these slash hooks through a, a timber partition and it hit the top of his helmet. And so he's been standing on the far side of it. When they got back into the prison, they tried to come into an area that we had designated for visits. Yeah. So there was a partition and they tried to break in through that partition. So they were putting these slash hooks through the partitions and it hit the top of his helmet, split the back of his helmet and came down. And I said to him, Jesus, I said, your helmet is split. And he said, no. And he took it off. He said, oh, fuck. And he said, Jesus, I didn't know that. So it was a state of shock inside, to be honest with you. The assistant guard, the commissioner, with responsibility for the island at that time, was Paddy Power. Uh, two main blocks have been burned down. One is a prisoner's accommodation and the other is the administration block that's been completely destroyed. And a number of other cell units have been destroyed in the sense that the toilets and washing basins have been smashed. 
by a quarter to seven with most of the prisoners on the roof. Prison officers and Garthi finally secured the perimeter of Fort Mitchell. Troops in full riot gear who marched up the hill to the prison were told their services were not required and they marched down the hill again. A short time ago, Gardaí at Fort Mitchell made it clear that they would leave the remaining 40 protesters on the roof until they decided to come down voluntarily. The 40 prisoners, many of them wearing prison officers' uniform or wrapped in blankets, had their own ideas. That image of the prisoners up there on the roof in stolen prison officers' caps and, and uniform coats was particularly painful for John Cuff and his colleagues. This is humiliation in, in terms of a prison in the sense that you have a job, it's a simple enough job to keep prisoners safe, keep yourself safe, keep the, the building safe. Because when you look and you see the building is burned to the ground, you're kind of saying to yourself, Jesus, this is going to, how are we going to answer this one? You know. Meanwhile, on the roof, the 18-year-old joyrider Michael and his fellow protesters were settling in for a long stay. I remember looking down and the whole island was full of girls and officers, I mean, full of them. Like, and, uh, what did you think at that point? Well, which we were getting up for a battle. Like, we, we were, you know, we were trying to be brave, I suppose. You know, we were setting up all the tiles on top of one another. The governor was trying to negotiate with us and... We were just having a laugh. We were young for it. We thought it was hilarious. And then you had all these camera crews coming, helicopters. Back on the rooftop, the 40 or so prisoners appeared to be trying to keep themselves warm. One of those circling overhead was RTE's star reporter, Charlie Bird. But perhaps the pall of smoke still hanging over the island this afternoon bore the true witness to the real extent of the early morning riot. I think it's very bad that people had to put up with these conditions for so long. On the ground, RTE reporter Michael Walsh spoke to Gordon Cullen, one of the civilians living on the island. At the start, when the first few breakouts happened, it was said that the prison wasn't secure. And Mr Noonan turned around on a radio programme, said that we were only dramatising the situation, that we would be more afraid of drunken Navy men coming into the place. I don't think it's a any way to say dramatise after the situation that young children had to walk through a line of men holding clubs and batons to get to a safe house to stay in. Now the latest news headlines. 40 prisoners are still on the roof of the Fort Mitchell complex on Spike Island. They've been surrounded by Gardaí and the main building was destroyed during the rioting. The rooftop protest went on all of Sunday. The assistant guard, the commissioner, Paddy Power, explained his tactics. Well, we'll have to wait until they come down. We don't intend going up to pull them off or throw them off or anything like that. We'll have to wait until they come down because we certainly can't have a confrontation up on the roof. Then, as the day went on, members of the public began to arrive on the island. Now, while this seems mad in the middle of an emergency situation, one of those members of the public ultimately helped to end the riot. Prison officer John Cuff. If you're in America and there's a prison, you won't get within five miles of that prison because there's barbed wires and whatever. In Ireland, you can walk right up to the door of any of them and bang it, throw stuff over the walls. So the mothers and fathers and relations and rubberneckers and whatever said, what do we do today? We'll go up to Spike and have a look. There's a riot going on out there. Some of the mothers belong to the boys came over and they were on the opposite side of the pier, one in particular. 
and she spotted her son on the roof and she shouted at him. And Michael was up there on the roof beside the woman's son. He was calling him and, ah, my John, he was all calling me, ma'am, and he's running away, you know. It was very funny. She was embarrassed and angry and whatever. And they were looking to get off the roof, to be quite honest with you, because they were tired, they were getting cold, they were going nowhere. And then the big ladder was set up and he went down because his man was screaming at him. And then everyone just followed So It's like anything. Once one fella says, oh, fuck, I've had enough of this, I'm fucking coming down and give me shit, whatever. And the ladder goes, oh, once he goes, oh, yeah, well, I'm over with him as well. And suddenly then it starts to come down then. Like, there was no negotiation or nothing. It was uh, the Irish mammy. It was the cock mammy, right? Do you know what I mean? Get out of there. Oh, it was very funny. And uh, she was screaming and throwing herself off the demont and everything if he didn't come down. And he came down, so everyone just followed suit. And that was the end of the spike diving way. It was just after 6.30 on Sunday evening, September the 1st, 1985. After the riot, most of the prisoners, including Michael, were taken off the island and sent to other prisons around the country. John Cuff and his colleagues were left minding the remaining prisoners. Proper cells were constructed and a small population of prisoners were kept on the island here until 2004. But the memory of that night in 1985 still shapes the lives of those who were there. What was the fallout after all this? The fallout, that's a great question, because it's so simple, there was no fallout. Was there any debrief after? No, it was not. There was never debrief in the prison service. On the day I left, you never got... I spent 30 years in the prison service, 25 as a supervisor. You never got debriefed, you never got briefed. You kind of laugh at it because you've no choice. If you wanted to get angry about it, you'd get really angry about it. Some of the people that made the decisions, they couldn't stand over them. They were outrageous. You know, they put prisoners in danger, they put staff in danger. And they kind of look back and, because I was a member of staff, they put me in danger. I suppose we're very fortunate no one was actually seriously injured. We were very, very lucky. I do believe, and I have no evidence for it whatsoever, that psychologically, possibly, a number of staff may have suffered. No one did anything for them, nobody collectively gathered together and said you did the best in pretty awful conditions. No, Spike was a stain on the prison service. Have you been back to Spike? I have no ambition to go back. So good morning everybody, welcome to Spike Island. It's a lovely morning to be out here on this lovely island. Uh, my name is ALB, I'm one of the tour guides here. So just before we start, a few housekeeping items. Spike Island, Ireland's Alcatraz, is now a tourist attraction. In fact, five years ago, it was voted Europe's leading tourist attraction. You can sip your cappuccino as you take in the the burnt-out shells of the former prison and wander through the cells built after the riot, and the riot itself is now one of the stories told to visitors. Ireland was having a bit of trouble in its larger cities, particularly in Dublin, with young men stealing cars and joyriding them around the cities. So in 1985, it was decided that they'd open up Spike as a young juvenile prison. 
So you would... How's it feel then to see these buildings literally just crumbling? Oh, it's, it's to be honest, it's a bit heartbreaking. Um... For Claire Stack and the others who lived on Spike, the riot marked the end of their time on the island. And no one has lived here since. I don't know how long more they would have lasted here anyway. It might have been only another few years once the Navy were here. We're still allowed to live here, but how long more? We don't know, I suppose. But once the prison was here, then I kind of suppose it did bring it to an end. Not faster than might have happened. We'll just go through to the exhibition. This is the the riot as artwork. Centrepiece of the exhibition is a series here you see of ceramic pots carved into them. If you look, there's the story of the riot, what happened, but told from the perspective of the prisoners. And here, there's an image of the prisoners on the roof, and here, arm outstretched with the ballot lava on, is the artist. And the artist is Michael. Tell me about your life now. My life now? Mm. I don't know, I mean, I'm back in here now, you know. Michael did his time, and after Spike, he was released. But he never really managed to get free of the life that put him in jail in the first place. And now, he's back in prison. My whole life was a prison, you know, I mean, in old, in old recidivism. And there's a lot of us, like, you know, from that era. Half of them are dead. And I think that's what I'm trying to, trying to show with the pottery. And like my life since has probably been as chaotic as it was on the island that night, like, you know. You're in the unique position of having been at the riot on Spike, and now your artwork is back on the island representing the riot. So I'm actually looking forward to going on there with the family. My wife was all excited about it, and the kids, they're loving it. So, yeah. I might be able to inspire someone, you know what I mean? So it won't be in vain.